0: Okay, let me spring on you a pop quiz, but I think, uh, I think you're going to do well on this. You ready? I'm just the pastor, but you're the at work. You're the minister at work. Today is our last day together in the book of Colossians, and it is the book uh, that is about the life-altering, life-transforming message about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ the gospel message that he gives us that changes our soul's identity in the eyes of God. I mean, God just he looks at us completely different. And now he sees us as his chosen people. Right. Uh, holy, he sees us, it says, beloved. It means much loved by God. And so we are to put our old self off and clothe ourselves with love at work. Clothe ourselves at work. We are with him and in him, Colossians says, at work. I brought a friend today to help explain life at work. Uh, You you might know this man, he's Coach Gino. He's he's the uh, college basketball coach for the University of Connecticut, women's basketball coach. There is no coach in the history of college sports that is even close to this man seven time winner of the coach of the year award uh, <clears throat> coach of the year award he uh, has led the women's uh, national team to two gold medals listen to this uh, resume and everything I'm talk- I'm going to say you say to you is going to be men and women's sports all together okay he has had more he has the highest percentage records of win of any coach ever 88% He's won more national championships, Division I national championships, than any coach ever. Eleven. He did four national championship victories in a row. He's had more tournament wins in the the tournament championships. He's been to the Final Four more than any coach ever. From 2014 to 2017, that's six seasons, he never lost a basketball game. 111 consecutive victories. This man is amazing. And, and the reason I want to play a video of him in just a second, it's an interview question, is because he's one of these men that understands that he, he just doesn't believe in coaching a big, hairy, audacious goal of winning the national championship. He does not push the vision of winning the national championship. His first value and primary value is to coach the person. He coaches the person first and then about winning. He understands that he can't control whether or not they'll win the national championship, and so he doesn't push that as his primary vision. Instead, he coaches what he can control, character and basketball skills, and that's what he coaches. And what we're going to do now is we're going to look at, I mean, that's a whole paradigm, by the way, you know, it's, it's a paradigm of coaching. It, you either get this or you don't. And the reason I say that is because in this interview, he's, you can tell people just don't understand people over vision. They read into what he does like the, for this value instead. So he's, he's being asked how difficult it is to recruit really good students into the basketball uh, program at UConn. And since we are studying, the, the reason I'm showing you this, we're studying... Uh, how we're supposed to act as strong believers in Jesus Christ at work and so instead of hearing coach and players I want you to hear that he's the boss and he's looking for good employees listen to what he's looking for in good employees and then keep in mind that he's a good boss I think and we'll see that that might come up as well this is about we're going to apply this to what we're going to find out in Colossians so listen to coach Gino here
1: recruiting enthusiastic kids is harder than it's ever been because every kid watches TV and they watch the NBA or they watch Major League Baseball or they watch the NFL, whatever sport they watch, WNBA, it doesn't matter. And what they see is people just being really cool. So they think that's how they're going to act. And they haven't they haven't even figured out which foot to use as a pivot foot, and they're going to act like they're really good players. You see it all the time. You see it at every AAU tournament. You see it every high school game. So recruiting kids that are like really upbeat and loving life and love the game and have this tremendous appreciation for when their teammates do something well, that's hard. That's hard. It's really hard. So on our team, we, Me, my coaching staff, we put a huge premium on body language. And if your body language is bad, you will never get in the game. Ever. I don't don't care how good you are. If somebody says, well, you know, you just benched Stewie for, you know, 35 minutes in the Memphis game a couple years ago. Yeah, I did. Oh, that was to motivate her for the South Carolina game the following Monday. No, it wasn't. Stewie was acting like a 12-year-old, so I put her on the bench and said, sit there. It doesn't matter on our team. Now, the other coaches might say, well, you can do that because you got three other you know, All-Americans. I get that. I understand that. But I'd rather lose than watch kids play the way some kids play. I'd rather lose. And they're allowed to get away with just whatever. And they're always thinking about themselves. Me, 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 me. I didn't score, so why should I be happy? I'm not getting enough minutes. Why should I be happy? That's the world that we live in today, unfortunately. And kids check the scoreboard sometimes because they're going to get yelled at by their parents if they don't score enough points. Don't get me started. So when I, when I look at my team, they know this. When I watch game film, I'm checking what's going on on the bench. And if somebody's asleep over there, somebody doesn't care. Somebody's not engaged in the game; they will never get in the game, ever. And they know that; they know I'm not kidding.
0: I said that's good coaching, and he's looking for good players. See what he's, what he's. It's a paradigm. It's a paradigm to coach the person, and then the vision of winning. That's a paradigm, and I, I want you to see that it's a, it's a paradigm that he's coaching character first, and it's because it's all the time. He's it's body language. He coaches posture on the bench. That's how, that's how committed he is to the transformation of these young ladies in, in, into people with virtue. And you can tell it's a paradigm because other people say, oh, I get it. If you bench somebody, it's so that you can win. No, because that's their paradigm. Winning first, person second. And that's the only way they can interpret that, that decision. He goes, no, no, no. I benched her because she was acting like a 12-year-old, and that's what you do to 12-year-olds. You put them in timeout. And then he said this. this. This was a telling point to his value of his paradigm. I'd rather lose than play a player like that. See, the person over the vision of winning, he said I'd rather lose than win playing a player with that attitude man, that seems a little bit harsh. I'll tell you what, I'd want my daughter to play for him, right? And this is what he's looking for because he knows this, that kid with the bad attitude on the bench, that attitude, that posture, it's infectious. It gets all over the team. You have employees or you're one of those employees that has a sourpuss attitude and it'll get around. And so this coach knows I'm, I'm watching game films, he, game films. He's watching the bench for posture. So here's the point. I'm letting him serve as introduction to what we're going to look at in Colossians right now. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, we are radically changed by the power of the gospel. And it shows up at work. It shows up at work. Because our changed, we're supposed to have a changed heart Towards work. The word heart is going to be used a couple of times in our passage today. And and because here's the point, here's why. Because because Christianity is supposed to make a radical intervention into every aspect of the Christian life. Everything is part of the Christian life. So our relationships, our family, and here we are at work this week at work. (laughs) I'm just the pastor, you're the at work, at work. So we're gonna look at a passage in just a few seconds here, and and the vocabulary in this passage is going to be talking about slaves and masters. And just let me give you a heads up before we get there so you don't get too, I don't don't know, confused or whatever, uh, or upset by that vocabulary. Uh, Roman slavery, uh, it's not comparable to the American slave experience. So more than half of the people walking in the major cities were slaves. Uh, Most of the educated uh, professional jobs were held by slaves, like the doctors and accountants and the lawyer types, those were slaves. uh, Your social status was attached to not being a slave or not being a slave, but rather who you were working for. As a matter of fact, some people, because of the volatility of, of consistent work, they would just sell themselves to someone. So that they could have a consistent income. Now they couldn't own property. They they right and they didn't have rights per se, but it 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 was it was some, it was something different enough not to say it's like American slavery. Rather, it's much closer to what Americans experience as bosses and employees. Slaves are like modern day employees. It's most similar to that. So that's when we look at that. Let's look at that. Uh, let's look at it in that context. What do you give your boss? We're going to look at employees first. What are you supposed to give your boss? This passage is going to say, a focused heart and all of it. A focused heart towards work and all of it. Look what it says in 22 and 23. It says, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, uh, not by way of eye service, just like in front of them as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working for the Lord, not for human masters." That first phrase that I've uh, um, emphasized there, with sincerity of heart. Some of your Bible translations that will be literal will say, singularity of heart. Single-minded about being working for that person. And he says, really, you're working for God, not that man or that woman. And what singularity of heart means, means uh, not with hypocrisy, not with duplicity, right? Not self-seeking is what he said in front of them and so just showing off when he's there. Uh, duplicity in our relationship with God is pretty easy to see, right? That's when we, we don't have singularity of heart. We, we come to church and we sing the songs and we, we're pretty good at doctrine. And then outside the campus, what are we doing? Acting crazy, right? We're stealing and lying and acting immorally. That's duplicity. That's not, that is the opposite of singularity of heart. When it comes to this passage here, uh, sincerity of heart is is saying, uh, let's use our words, great posture, on the bench, all the time. So, if you have singularity of heart towards your employer, The company that you work for. It means that you don't. You're not just sweet and nice to the boss right in front of him, and then you don't go home and bad talk him. you know, at the dinner table. Singularity to heart means that when your boss is walking, watching you, you're working real hard, and then when he or she leaves, you kind of go into neutral and try to see how little you can get done in as much time as possible. Right. It means that. It means that when he or she is in front of you, you absolutely support that person, but then maybe you're throwing him under the bus with his superiors or you're forming a conspiracy of gossip at the water cooler. Singularity of heart means the way you talk about your boss in front of him is the same as the way you talk about your boss at the water cooler. That's what it means. Singularity of heart, sincerity of heart. And I, I, don't, I don't know if you've like, thought through this kind of summary. It's interesting to understand that most of the, the Old Testament saints that you know stories about, they are almost all slaves slash employees for seriously pagan bosses, some diabolically evil. You have Joseph and Nehemiah and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, Esther, Mordecai, David for a certain part of his life. These people are either in, in a context of employees or they're slaves, very, they're slaves. And you know what they, they all are great at giving singularity of heart towards their bosses. Uh, uh, Joseph, uh, no, no, it was Daniel, when he goes to Nebuchadnezzar, who is a megalomaniac, And he's insanely incrazed by power and lust. And he says, "Nebuchadnezzar, may you live forever." And then goes and tells him what the answer to the dream was. He had good posture all the time, even on the bench. Singleness, sincerity of heart—that's what you owe your boss, Um, Bob Cratchit, Uh, Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens right? Who does he work for? Ebenezer Scrooge. That, that is literally the iconic name for the worst boss you could have, right? I mean, I mean that is the, we call people that. I'm working for Scrooge, right? So, at at Christmas mealtime, and, you know, if you read the book or if you watch the various movies, you see that there's not a lot to be thankful for because he's so he's paid so poorly, right? And, and so, he, he does this, to Mr. He, he raises a toast, he says, to Mr. Scrooge, the founder of this feast. There's no feast, but the founder of this feast. And then his wife jumps in and says, we are not toasting that Ebenezer Scrooge. And Bob Cratchit says, come on, honey, it's Christmas. We're going to be grateful, we're going to be thankful. I'm going to be singularly committed to him in my heart I'm going, to, I'm going to talk respectfully to him at work, and when I come home and I'm at this dinner table, I will, I will treat him that way as well. That's a good employee. Good posture. Good posture. On the bench. That's what you owe your boss. Here's the next passage. We'll look at this, verse 23, I think, again, and look, listen for the heart on this, one, on this one. Verse 23, whatever you do, whatever you do, everything you do, work at it with all your heart as though you're working for the Lord, not for human masters. Whatever you do, everything, all your heart, you're doing it for the Lord. There's a movement, some of you might know this word, pietism, got started in Germany. It was the German Lutherans in the 17th century. This church, we're uh, what's called an evangelical church. That's what, if somebody says, what kind of church are you going to? It's a Bible church. It's evangelical church. The evangelical roots, the sapling is right here, 17th century German Lutheran Pietism, and what that means is, and it went all across Europe. What that, with the worldview or the paradigm of Pietism is this: that the Bible has authority in everything; that God rules in every aspect of creation, and and in heaven and on earth, and so. The Bible has authority in my life, every aspect of my life, the way I speak, the way I think, the way I feel, the way I respond to people, right? My conduct, all of those things, like this passage says, whatever you do, whatever you do, you do with a whole heart as you're serving the Lord. This, this idea of pietism, this value of pietism shows up where everything is the Lord, and that's why many of the major universities in Europe were started by a version of pietism, because they wanted to know more about God's kingdom. And science and and, and math and various disciplines of the university were getting major upgrades because of this value of pietism in everything you do. The Protestant work ethic, if you've ever heard that figure of speech, comes from this value that there is no distinction between sec- secular and sacred. Okay? Everything, everything is sacred. So there's not this division between the priest and the person. In other words, they would say in the 17th century, every believer is a minister. And everything a believer does is worship. So it, it made itself into the, into the worldview, the paradigm, the, the mindset Everything that people did was an expression of, of giving back joyfully to the Lord. All of life was worship. You could even see it in the painting started changing back then in two ways. One, it became more vivid and more real. The people weren't, you know, like flat. They became almost three-dimensional, Very hyper-realism, in other words. And then the second thing that I want you to see in some of these uh, paintings is they made the, the common or the mundane beautiful, elegant, spectacular, holy worship. And so you see a woman, you know, cutting some bread and, and feeding the cat at her feet, and it's because that's worship. Common things. Here a day at the market with great detail, and, and no one's wearing a halo like previously, doing some sort of holy thing at church. No, no, no. They're just, they're just going to the market. That's how they're expressing uh, their their holiness. There's a woman just cleaning a fish because that gives glory to God. There's no secular sacred divide. Everything's sacred. And, and, and why is that? Because of this passage. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work with all your heart, working as for the Lord, not for your human masters. So, if you're working at some place and your boss has you making hats… Make hats for the glory of God. If you're a cobbler, make shoes. Make shoes so nice that Jesus would be proud to wear them. Dorothy Sayers says it like this. Dorothy Sayers was a a friend of C.S. Lewis, so by definition she was smart. She, She says this about secular, sacred, how it works. She says, listen, the church's approach to a carpenter is usually con, um, confined to exhorting him not to get drunk or disorderly in his leisure time and come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this. This is pietism. Church should tell him this, that the very first demand that, is, uh, that his religion is to make upon him is that he should make good tables. How does a Christian carpenter show his Christianity? In the excellence of his work, giving his whole heart to that project because he's doing it for the Lord. You're supposed to think like this, think like the pietism in days gone by, that, that all of life, right, all of life is, has meaning, that your work has meaning to it, God-given meaning to it. Because if you cannot attach meaning, God-given meaning to that work, you're going to be con- condemned in some respects to finding yourself compartmentalizing Sunday morning or, you know, your time in the morning or your drive prayer time. That's a thing with your spiritual life. And then there's all these other hours where you're doing stuff, the, the common but, but what this passage is saying is all of work is prayer. All of work is prayer. You give your boss a singular heart and a whole heart, and you will be giving honor to God. That's what Paul's saying here. And friends, these days, by the way, you do that first, you'll be successful. If you just worry about success and then character later, it might not happen. I, I, I told my kids growing up, and all three of them, Lynn and I, just constantly— it's so easy now to win. You're, it's just—it's never been easier to win in life because here's what you need to do. Work hard and show some respect. You work hard and show some respect. Employers are going to like be banging on your door to get you to work for them because we're in a culture that's lazy for the most part and has no respect for authority. So you just got to do sirs and ma'ams, show up early, stay a little bit late, work hard in between. You know, like it says in Proverbs, you see that man who is very skilled, he will not stand before obscure people. He will stand before the king. That's what he's saying right here. Single heart. That's what you owe your boss. A single heart, a whole heart for, for your boss and the job that you're doing. Do you know why? Even when you're on the bench. Do you know why? It actually says, the Bible says, so you'll be rewarded. Look at the next two verses. It's a sense because here's why. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for what they're doing wrong, and there's no favoritism here. Whether you're the, the favoritism is whether you're a boss or employee. He doesn't care. Here's what he's saying here: If you serve in your job, every believer is a minister at work and you serve with a sincere heart, a singular heart, with a whole heart, giving them everything, right, even on the bench, (laughs) just picture this. God himself is giving out bonuses. I mean, Jesus Christ is handing out bonuses, it says. And can you imagine if a slave who couldn't own property read that sentence and said, what? Oh, I'll serve my boss here because I'm really serving Jesus, and he's giving out bonuses. And the loss here is he's talking about that, you know, if you, if you don't, if you're lazy and don't care, you'll, you'll miss out on the bonus because that's justice, and that's how it works at work. So, so <laughs> the, the summary, the, in summary of this is all legitimate work, all legitimate work is a gift from God. We're, we've been, it's, it's been delegated to us, we're in the image of God, and one of the attributes that we have, a communi- an attribute communicated to us, is sovereignty, is the ability to rule. And so, back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, I'm going to give you a place to rule and be like me. And, and so, your job is to take chaos and turn it into order, take something out of alignment and, and put it in alignment. Take something kind of haphazard and make it beautiful. That's, that's, that's why we do what we do at work. Uh, one of our members here, a, a good soul, uh, spent some time in prison a few years ago, and this, this idea, this value came on him while he was in prison. He was, he was there for a, a number of years, and he was assigned the night janitor shift for a while. Now, the night janitor shift was loathsome. It was not a good uh, place or time to be out, and most of the guys uh, used it as an opportunity to lean on a mop and try to sleep standing up, and that's how he started, and then he realized he's got to change his attitude, and he did. First thing he changed in his attitude was he became grateful. He realized by working the night shift in the janitorial uh, duties that he could, first of all, finally have peace and quiet. And most of the time in the men's section of the prison, it's just nothing but guys yelling some really rancid and vile things. And then now he could have quiet and prayer and meditation. The second thing he changed was his attitude towards work. He realized he wasn't working for the warden. He was working for God. He was working for Jesus Christ, not his boss, the boss. And friends, this man went to work. He pushed that broom in the corners that had never been swept before. He mopped the filth and the sludge for the first time maybe some of those places had ever touched. He went into the bathrooms and scrubbed those showers in the corners where the mold was so deep and thick and layered. they They called it named, like a pet. There's a kind of common area called the day rooms, and all the cells, it's kind of a common area in the middle, and all the cells look down on it. And that in the common area had multiple chairs around tables, and he shined those, buffed them, and the place looked brand new. And one time he was, you know, kind of out in the yard, and a scary guy right? It's prison. I think in there, don't you have to be scary to qualify for that? You know, the, the, the teeth, the cap gold teeth thing, you know, comes up to him and, and says, hey, listen, I, I, I wanted to thank you. So I've been here a long time, and it, okay, he didn't have my face. He was, I want to thank you. Uh, I want to thank you. The this, this place looks really nice, and I, I just want to know, like, what's, he says, what's up? You know, what's up with all the hard work? Why do you do that? And here's what he said. He said, I don't work hard. It's not work, it's worship. And then he said, that's what's up. It's not work, it's worship. Can I tell you something about this prisoner? He's getting a bonus from Jesus Christ. And I know that because the Bible says so. Singular, wholehearted towards the job that God gave him. What about the boss? What about you that are managing people or actually maybe are in charge of the company? Well, chapter 4, verse 1 has something for you. It says, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and what is fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. He's... This, this reminds us a little bit of what we learned last week when we treated other people in our family. There's a soul in there. You treat them like they're human, like, like they're human beings in the image of God. Coach like Coach Gino would do. Right? I, I'll tell you, if you're running a business and it's all about making as much money as possible and using the people to do that, if you put it in that order, if that's your paradigm and it's hard to break it, then you're going to be fighting the gravity of starting to use people as cogs in your machine. And, and you're not going to get the best out of them, and you probably won't get that first thing, that vision. But, but if you saw that people were more important, and they were first, and, you saw, and then you saw the vision of trying to turn a profit, you're going to get more out of your employees because, because you give them honor, and you'll probably get your vision, which is what happens with Coach Gino and Coach K and Coach Myers, all these other coaches that say, you know what, I can coach what I, I, can, coach what I can control, character and skills. That's what he's saying. What does the Bible say? You give him or her your, employer, your employee, you pay them well, and you do what's right to them. You guys probably know the name Andrew Carnegie. Right? He was uh, one of the early multimillionaires back in the Industrial Revolution change that took place here in the United States, he, he, in what became U.S. Steel, that was his. Today, he would be a billionaire, all right? And, and he was, this is why, might be why you know him, he was famously generous when he was on the court. But when people weren't watching him on the bench, he was Ebenezer Scrooge. He built over 2,056 libraries. And one time uh, one of his employees was interviewed about the spectacular generosity of his boss, and his and the employee said, We didn't need a library, we needed a working wage. Here's what it was like to work for Andrew Carnegie, U.S. Steel. So, you know, melting steel. The guys were required to work 12-hour days. It was so hot around the furnaces that they had to nail wooden planks to their shoes so their rubber soles wouldn't melt to the floor and their feet wouldn't be burned just by just touching the floor. 12-hour shifts, no days off. If you, if, to get a day off, you worked two weeks in a row, but the last day you did a 24-hour shift which means you don't get the next day off, really, right? So you do a 24-hour shift, and then you get one day off. They, they, they weren't paid enough to live in anything but slums. so all the steelworkers and their families lived in their own slum area. Most men died in their early 40s because of injury or because of disease. Many of the laws that we have today, and the reason we have unions is because of people like Dale Carnegie, that when they were out front, they couldn't help but be generous to look good for themselves, but they weren't fair. A a Christian boss, a Christian employer, the reason we have so many of the laws that we have about the safety of our employees and about fair pay is because people ignore this. They just want to make as much as they can for them. The reason we have unions is because it was the only way that, that uh, employees could amass enough, right, negotiating power to get what was once you know, fair and safe. And, and if, if the, it's interesting, you, see, you just go back to the Bible and said, if, if people would have just been employees like the Bible and been employers like the Bible, then none of these would be necessary. This is the standard that God has for us in the workplace. Here's the workplace value. I'm just the pastor. You're the at work, at work. And so whether you're the boss or the guy that's lowest on this totem pole, you give singular heart commitment to that, sincerity of heart. You give your whole heart to that. You're working for the Lord. You're working to the Lord. And here's why. Because Jesus Christ is giving out bonuses. He's watching you on the court and on the bench. And he's looking at posture. <laughs> he's looking at body language. That's what the Bible says. And that, that's, that's what we're to learn today from this. The Colossian series, in many respects, has been an answer to prayer, hasn't it? I mean, I hope you've learned some things and maybe even had some life-changing revelations as a result because it is an answer to prayer. Actually, it's an answer to the prayer. It's an answer to one of the greatest prayers that's ever been prayed. We prayed it for, you know, Lent, right? More than 40 days we prayed Colossians 1 prayer. We start off by studying, right, the focus on the splendor of Jesus Christ. And what that meant was the uniqueness of Christ and the sufficiency of the gospel. That was awesome. And then the next thing we looked into was the the wisdom we put into focus. The wisdom, just like the prayer says, Lord, give us wisdom that only the Spirit of God can give us. And what did we learn through that? We learned that we're with Jesus. And everything he went through, we went through. And so we died with him, and we were raised with him. right? And we are hidden with him, and he is our life. And then we will be in glory with him. We spent some weeks studying that, and then we looked at life in focus because we wanted to apply that new identity that we have, right? That we are, that we are called, that we are holy, and that we are beloved. And we, here's what we prayed: that we would live a life worthy of the Lord, and then we would practice that it would cause us to please Him in every way. That we'd be bearing much fruit in all that we do. We growing in our knowledge with Him. And that led us to the next part of our prayer, and that is relationships in focus. Because this is a mysterious verse, I still don't understand it, that we would be strengthened by the power and the might of His glory, strengthened by the power and the might of His glory, so it would apply to relationships so that we'd have endurance and patience with our family and at work. That's the book of Colossians. It's the answer to the one of the most awesome prayers that you can ever pray. I thought it'd be appropriate to end in prayer with that today. Let's join join me with that. Lord, I I continually pray that you would fill grace, this church, dear God bless this church, with the knowledge of your will, through all the wisdom and the understanding that, that your spirit gives us about being in you, about being with you, that we died with you and we raised with you or hidden with you, you are our life, that you'd help us understand what it means that someday we'll be in glory with you so that, so that we might live a life worthy of you and please you in every way and bearing fruit in every good work and growing in our knowledge of you and somehow being strengthened by all the power that is according to the might of your glory that the power and might of your glory would spill onto our lives so that we would have great endurance and patience towards our fellow man. Lord, teach us to be joyful and grateful, thanking the Father because he qualified us to share in the inheritance as your holy people in the kingdom of light, that kingdom that belongs to Jesus who rescued us from the dominion of darkness, that kingdom that you love That Jesus brought us to that kingdom through redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Lord Jesus, make us individuals, families, workers, a church that glorifies you in all things that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen.